Uh, we are thrilled. Will you pray with me? For William Wilberforce and Josephine Butler, and for all who work to transform the world, thanks be to God. We're delighted that Matt asked us to take one of these catechesis sessions, Souls on Mission, because some exciting things are going on, and we all need to know about it, and participate in it, celebrate it. Uh, one year ago, um, Jennifer and I took a look at what was known as missions, M&E, missions and evangelism, and we kind of changed gears, we reorganized, I guess you could say we kind of reimagined in some ways the kingdom work of uh, Souls on Mission, and what animates this work is our worship, which is, worship is the work of the people. And that encompasses every aspect of our lives. So that which we confess with our lips becomes that which we demonstrate with our lives. I love the general thanksgiving uh, from morning prayer in the Book of Common Prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. It reads, give us that due sense of all thy mercies that our hearts may be this is right one, by the way, old language, that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful and that we show forth thy praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives by giving up ourselves to thy service. So in other words, what the church does at liturgy, she does in life. Um, and this is the work that Souls on Missions acknowledges, elevates, and celebrates. And as we think about that work, and as I think about it, Jennifer had asked me to address specifically two things. Souls on mission, uh, mission as imagination and practice. And I thought about our primary work as prayer. Prayer is imagination and prayer is practice. Chris Norton gave a great catechesis a couple weeks ago. And he mentioned C.S. Lewis reading Gordon, uh, George MacDonald's Fantastis. And C.S. Lewis says that conversion begins with the imagination. And he said, when I was reading that at the age of 16 on the train, my imagination was fired, and it was also baptized. And that imagination continues. Prayer perpetuates that imagination. Prayer itself is a work of the imagination. When we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we have to first see what God wills on earth. We have to see what God is doing, and then we join him in that. And when God first created the earth, he, he, he had to imagine it. Then he created it. We use imagination to see the stuff that he's made, all that particular wonderful stuff of earth that he has made that Martin just spoke about earlier. And imagination is not seeing what's not there. We would call that being surreal. It's surreal. It's bizarre. That's not it. Rather, imagination is seeing what is there, and that takes prayer. So prayer is sanctified imagination. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, the quality which enchanted me in George MacDonald's imaginative works turned out to be the quality of the real universe, the divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic reality in which we all live. So prayer engages us with God at work in this world. Prayer opens our eyes to this, and it moves us to work in our Father's world with and for our Father's children. And so... That brings us to prayer as practice. How is God at work? The founding principle of the Anglican Church, lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief, or you are what you pray. Praying shapes believing, and it also shapes our practice. So if you think about the incarnation, 
It leads to the sacramental, but it also leads to the ascetical. That's because it uses the things of this world for our spiritual growth. In other words, we're shaped by what we do. Our habits shape and change us. And spiritual growth is a practice, it's a habit of spiritual life, and it's had by doing. A form of spiritual growth, of course, formation is a daily office, but it's also the daily work. Doing good work and doing good works. Father Andrew reminded us last week that we don't need a big theological rationale and a big statement for doing good. It's like that Geico commercial. It's what we do. And God's in it. So do good for goodness sake. If God is the only one who's good, as Jesus said, then we do good by God's enabling for all God's people. And as Joel Erickson reminded us last week in his catechesis, as Herbert puts it, George Herbert puts it, we go out to practice what we pray for. And I say all that to give you some kind of a, a philosophically theological uh, rationale, not just a rationale, but a vision for souls on mission. This is the heart of souls on mission. We go out to practice what we pray for. And it's the central theme of the stories you will now hear from some of our souls who are living it and who are practicing it. Good morning. I'm going to see if I can... There we go. Hopefully you've gotten the handout. Uh, I want to point out that it is two-sided. Um, we're not going to talk much about the budget, but we want you to have it. Um, we've given an interesting challenge to the people that are talking today, telling us their stories, and that is they need to talk for about five minutes. Um, any one of these people could have talked for 45 minutes on the stories from the work that they do. So this is a, a unique challenge. Um, if we have a few moments, um, or even not during this session, we would love to answer your questions about the budget. Um, the reality is that some of our work is reflected in the money that we, that we give as a church that we send out. And um, some of the work that we do has nothing to do with money. And um, so I put that on the back side just to give you context of what we have committed to um, as a church financially. So we framed our um, stories today around um, six practices. So mine is leaning into the yes. So let me tell you a, a few stories to give some context for this. So um, I'm Jennifer. I grew up outside Philadelphia. And um, in the summer of 1985, I had just graduated from high school. And uh, I spent a portion of the summer in um, what's called Center City, Philadelphia, um, an urban neighborhood uh, where most of the people who lived there were Southeast Asian refugees. So this was 85, and um, these are people that were escaping the Vietnam War at the time. And they were just the beginning of 
um, a series of refugees that arrived in the United States. And we were working with families, with kids, um, Cambodian, Laotian families. And, and I would say that my spiritual imagination was ignited as I got to know these kids. And one of my favorite things was simply that they smelled different. They didn't smell bad. They smelled like their food. They smelled like the food that they still made here. And, and they, in some ways, were just kids, but, but they, there was something so different about them, and I wanted to understand their stories and where they had come from. And, and, and that was something that was just kind of in my, in my background as I left high school, headed to Wheaton College, so now I'm in the Midwest. Um, we, um, I was at Wheaton, Hal just walked in with Aiden, hello. Good to see you guys. Um, met Hal, married Hal. We headed to Boston for three years, came back to Wheaton, and um, started having babies. So Austin is our oldest. He's a senior at Wheaton this year. And in August of 2002, um, we walked about hmm, four blocks up the street to um, kindergarten for the first time. And um, we live in a lovely neighborhood full of houses, you know, just normal Wheaton houses, and I was pleasantly shocked to find that half of Austin's kindergarten class didn't speak English. And I thought, how, what? <laughs> what where are these people coming from? And I, I honestly, I'm almost embarrassed to say I didn't even understand. Um, it seemed that um, some of them were Hispanic, some spoke Spanish, uh, but many were Caucasian children who didn't speak English. And I began to put together that they were from Eastern Europe. They were Bosnian, they were Polish, they were Czech, and, and they were escaping the Bosnian War. And that, of course, connected with my 1985 experience. And um, I found myself on an interesting journey. The first thing that happened was we found that there were any any of you who have been in kindergarten or um, have children who have been in kindergarten lately may recall um, the gallon Ziplocs. There's Tammy knows this. The gallon Ziplocs that have little books inside of them, and we just called them book bags. And the thing that um, Austin's kindergarten teacher rec uh, discovered was that when these book bags were sent home with kids whose parents didn't speak English, they never came back. And the point was for it to go home. You read it as a family, and you send it back the next day or a couple days later. And so we were kind of brainstorming, and we thought, well, how do we get these book bags back? I mean, it's such a silly little thing. But um, but then initially the teacher was saying, well, we just can't send these home with, with the kids that don't speak English because we can't deplete our, our little kindergarten library. And um, But then we thought, well, a lot of these families do read in their native language. So I began to pursue getting the instructions translated. The instructions were right on the Ziploc, right there in English. And, and so my sister translated um, the, the words into Spanish um, by a convoluted, um, lovely story. I found someone who worked in Saga, the um, dining hall at Wheaton College, who would translate into Bosnian. And, um, it was really fun to see these books start to go home and, and come back to the kindergarten classroom. Um, roll the clock forward a little bit further. Um, October of 2008, um, Austin was now at Franklin Middle School, our, our middle school that is probably about 
four blocks south of us. So uh, he was doing great there and I was getting to know the staff and um, quickly learned that there were kids, um, these are two of them right here, who were getting involved in the choral program and they were coming to chorus class and they were really enjoying it. It was great for learning English to be able to sing lyrics and um, learn as you go. Uh, but in October, the first concert came around. If you have ever had a kid or been in choir, you know, you might have a class, but then you need to show up in the evening. I mean, that's kind of a thing that American schools do. You show up in the evening for a concert or, or, some, or even a sporting event or something like that. And um, what the choral teacher found was that um, despite the instructions that she gave during the school day, the kids didn't show up. So here are the reasons that they gave the next day. Some are, um, are funny and some are a little bit sad. Um, uh, not surprisingly, we don't have a car. Um, my parents work at night. Um, my favorite kind of um, hilarious and also sad um, and picture, these are 11 to 13 year olds. Um, my parents didn't believe me <laughs> that I needed to go back to school. <laughs> so uh, I was talking with some of the staff that I had begun to get to know and realized that for most of these kids, they just needed a ride. And, and so I started offering rides to the kids and the fun part about it was that it got so big that they didn't all fit in my van. <laughs> so I needed some friends to help, um, help me do that. So, uh, that began something that we call Franklin Friends, and um, and a number of you in this room are part of that. I know Kathy. Kathy has driven kids, and um, and it's really easy. It's just carpooling, and um, the way this is leaning into yes is that each one of these situations was um, a time when um, I was open to what God had brought my direction, and. Um, Leaning into yes for me isn't about always saying yes. There are certainly times for no, um, but but it is about about watching and seeing what God has in mind and what comes close to you and where you might be involved in someone's life and make a difference. So we are going to move on to Becky. Oh, this is already, oh, thanks, okay. I was a little scared. I was like, I've never used one of these. Um, uh, for the sake of time, I will kind of be reading some bullet points. Actually, not kind of, almost completely, but I'll smile periodically. <laughs> um, I'm Becky, I'll be speaking about the practice of paying attention. Um, my husband Austin and I, uh, first got involved at the Emanuel Food Pantry back in June of 2016. I checked emails, it is true. Um, what I believe spurred my action um, to what would eventually become Souls on Cycle was about six months ago, Heidi Long made an announcement at church about the lack of paper products at the food pantry. And for the person speaking about the art of paying attention, I had gone two years without questioning where the toilet paper, diapers, and paper towels came from at the food pantry. So. Um, but I was paying attention to some other issues at the time. Uh, there was a lot going on in the news with women's issues such as the Me Too movement. I was learning more about families separated at the border. And Austin and I attended the Refugee Highway Partnership Roundtable, which is an annual conference gathering people from North America to educate on immigration issues. 
I had already had it in the back of my head that I wanted to be doing something, but the RHP and A helped with idea generation um, and insight into what others were doing in their communities. Most importantly, how people saw a need in their community and took charge themselves. Um, this is when my research began. I learned crucial information, such as the government tax currently placed on feminine products in 40 out of 50 states in the US. I learned about impoverished young women on Native American reservations skipping school because they have no money to buy feminine products. I learned about ways to save money on feminine products by buying in bulk. <laughs> um, it was in early November um, of 2018, and my landlord had brought several of uh, these large unmarked packages to me, and he said, getting a head start on Christmas presents, and I knew the boxes were filled with pads and tampons, but instead I was like, yep. Um, so with your help, uh, last week we had our first Souls on Cycle meeting where we put together 108 packages for the Emanuel Food Pantry, which was just awesome. Um, I was completely overwhelmed. Thank you to all who paid attention to my announcements and who provided product and who showed up. And um, it means so much to me and I know it will mean so much to the women in the community who will receive these products. So thank you. I knew. I knew. My name is Lydia. I'm uh, sick, so I'll leave this here. Um, I'm a junior at Wheaton College, and I have kind of a two-part story. The first part of the story I wrote about in the All Souls blog, but the, the short version of it is that for a student-led um, student organization kind of fundraiser I was, back, I was in back in, no, in September, I... Um, I was sent to a woman's house to help her move out. And as soon as I got to the door, I knocked on it and I said, and, and as soon as she, I, and she opened the door to me and she said three things. She said, my name is Chris, I have OCD and I'm a hoarder. Uh, and quickly we walked inside and there was, I mean, obviously a lot of work to be done. And the short version is that um, 15 other students came and we worked uh, for eight hours. And at the end of the day, there was still a lot to be done. And so I left my, I wrote my phone number and name on a piece of paper and I said call me if you need anything and I realized as soon as I got in the car she is never she's never gonna call me uh, so I called her the next day I called her on Sunday I called her several times she didn't answer I called again on uh, on Monday she didn't answer and I Monday evening rolls around and I check my phone history and to my horror I have called her seven times in 48 hours and have gotten no response and I know what you're all thinking at this point, like, who do I contact to get my phone number taken out of the church directory so that this girl doesn't get a hold of it? Uh, but the story actually gets worse, I think. So it's, it's 48 hours. I've called seven times. She hasn't answered. I'm going over there. Uh, so I go to her house, and uh, the rest is history. I, I went again on Tuesday night and again on Wednesday night and again on Thursday night. And by early, November, early December, um, the last of her belongings were taken out of the house, uh, and the house is now for sale, and it looks great. Um, but there's a second half of the story. While I'm, while I'm working with her, I'm kind of getting to know, by extension, um, her children. Uh, one of her children is Todd, who lives in Austin, Texas. He's in his mid to late 30s, and he has had a history of substance abuse. In high school, it was marijuana. In, uh, his, in his more recent years, it's been cocaine. Um, and so in mid-November, I get a phone call from Chris, and she says, I'm, it's Todd, I'm really worried about him. Uh, 
and and I said, can I call you back in two hours? And I don't know what my, I really don't know why I asked for two hours. I don't know what my plan was. I've never been to Austin, Texas. I've never met Todd. I, I don't really know anything about Austin at all. Um, but I have a friend, a Wheaton friend, who is from there, and her parents still live there. But I don't really know her parents either. I had met her mother one time over a family weekend, and I texted my friend. Apparently, she didn't know. I, and I, I, well, I texted my friend and asked for her mother's phone number. Apparently, she didn't know my history with abusing phone numbers. Uh, <laughs> And, and she gave it to me, and I called her mom, and I said, are you willing to have this guy in Austin, Texas, over to your house for dinner? You're going to have to do, the, you're going to have to call him. Are you willing to do this? And she says, oh, okay, sure. Uh, so she sends him a text message and invites him over for dinner, and he doesn't respond for two weeks. He's a little bit upset about the whole, about the whole exchange, understandably. Um, but he responds two weeks later. He's kind of in a bad situation, and he says, okay, I'd like to meet. And she says, come over for dinner tonight. Now, that was the last I'd heard until a few weeks ago. Chris called me, and she said, Lydia, I, I've been meaning to talk to you. It's about Todd. And I said, is everything okay? And she said, yes. Um, since Lisa has started to meet with uh, Todd every single week, um, she's brought him to her church. Uh, she's brought him, he started to go to a weekly community group. Um, he has, he started going to a group called Bondage Breakers. He's lived in Austin for 15 years and he's never felt at home. Uh, and he, he finally does for the first time ever. And he has now been clean for over a month. Um, she said, I've never seen, in 30 years, I've never seen my son cry, but he weeps on the phone when he talks to me. He says, Mom, I'm so happy. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I look back on this story, and I, I really have no idea what, why I called Chris seven times in 48 hours, um, and why her failure to answer the phone signaled to me that I should go to her house. Um, but as I reflect on it, I, I am so I so frequently brought back to this image that Dr. Sheasley has painted on the back wall, um, and I think about John 7 and Ezekiel 47, and it talks about this this river. Uh, and I think about the river that compels us and holds us and sustains us and how sometimes the river compels us to uh, do these kind of big and drastic things. But sometimes the river just compels us to ring our neighbor's doorbell on a Monday night and then again on a Tuesday night and then again on a Wednesday night. That's it. <laughs> So Sarah and I are going to talk about going small. I have a very small car. It's a Saturn Ion, and I just can't seem to get rid of it, although I'd love to. Um, <laughs> small things. If My wife, Tammy, and I used to walk in Danbury, Connecticut. There are hills there. Um, and I noticed when sometimes she'd get tired, all I would do is I'd just put um, one finger on her back as we were walking up the hill. You know, you hear, you hear people say, I, I, you know, I wouldn't lift a finger for you. Well, lift one finger, put it on someone's back, and just that small, persistent, consistent help got Tammy up the hill. Sometimes she needed to do it for me. Um, we're coming alongside Sarah and Doug Zimmerman at the Hawthorne House, and they house young women there who are trying to get back on their feet. These young women go to work. 
These young women pay sometimes up to $10 for an Uber ride, which is uh, a huge amount of money for them as they're trying to save to get on their way in life. And so uh, a group of us from All Souls have participated in just giving rides to these wonderful young women. Uh, as, uh, they're, they're up here. And um, Jennifer, Marie, uh, Trotter, Morrison Trotter, uh, Tammy and myself have done it so far, and, and Mike is coming on board too. So just to come alongside Sarah and Doug and what they're doing, a small push can generate huge results, Sarah. Okay, so um, yes, as Rob said, we work for Wheaton Youth Outreach, which is one of the ministries that All Souls does support in a variety of ways. And specifically, we live at Hawthorne House as a family, creating a community for young women, a safe place where they work on their goals, try to get some independent living skills, and send them on their way. Um, we give support in a lot of different ways. We have a whole team that gives support, not just us. There's a case manager, therapist, usually us as a family, um, another house parent that lives with us. But what we do as a family, we have four kids, um, and we just share life. We just go through, we go to school, we go to work, we talk about our day, cook dinner, um, play games, just live our life, um, sometimes seeming like very small, mundane ways. These are our current uh, residents that live with us. They gave permission to show you this picture. They know we're talking today. They come from really diverse backgrounds. They have unique stories. They're all there for different reasons, and they're working on different specific goals. But to some degree or another, they've all experienced some kind of developmental trauma, which is something I've learned a lot about over the years. Uh, this is one of my favorite books I brought. If anyone wants to read more about developmental trauma, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. So it's excellent. Um, and it means that they've had a significant breakdown in care um, during significant developmental times, critical times um, in their lives. So, and through that process, um, not only does it change your internal um, pathways and the way that you relate to other people, but for them also it's broken down their support system externally and they don't have a safety net, they don't have the same type of support that a lot of us may have had when we were launching from childhood into adulthood. And they're, they're trying to make it on their own um, and they, they need a lot of support in doing so. So we're part of that team that gives the support. And it's, it's not just social support and sharing common life, it's really um, the powerful part that I found is um, reciprocity, like being truly known by another person being held in someone else's mind and heart, something that you've probably experienced or you, you give to your children, um, it's, it's powerful and significant and not something that they have experienced much at all, honestly. Um, so in doing so, we want to create a place of safety, an environment where this, the impact of this trauma um, can sort of settle down and they can heal and grow as they work on these goals. So our, what we're all about is restoring relationships, creating community. Um, we've seen, you know, as humans, we have a capacity to hurt one another and destroy, and we unfortunately see that, but we also have a capacity to heal through relationships, and we want to be part of that. Um, that's, that's what we're all about. So that's a big goal, and it's accomplished in really small ways over time. From small things, big things do come. 
And we can only do this because of the support network that we have, which is all of you. So even if you haven't known that, you actually do support these women and love them because you love us so well. And you can know them directly by joining our team of drivers, as Rob said. Even just once a week or twice a week, helping them out, getting to work, it sends a huge message of care. They feel very cared for. And you can have just short conversations in the car, getting to know each other as they're very fond of Rob, for example, and talk highly of him at the dinner table often. Um, but it's just a way that they feel like somebody out there notices me and is helping and just wants to know my story, wants to know my life, just talking, getting to know your life as well. So if uh, I could talk a lot more about this, but I'll stop here. If you would like to hear more, uh, we're going to try to have another lunch after church in a couple weeks, we'll get a date out. You can come over, see our house, meet them, talk about how you might want to get on a schedule for giving rides, or just find out more about what we do. So, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I like the way you cut that. That's cute. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. <laughs> um, well, you'll see some beautiful faces of two children that we've hosted in our home here. Um, um, so I'm talking about radical hospitality, which is a big buzzword right now um, for a lot of Christians. And you'll see a lot of books that are out with that, that phrase on them. Um, but for us, it started a long time ago. My husband, um, Jim, Jim, is downstairs with the kids right now, so I'm going to speak for him, which... You guys know it's probably not too hard for me because <laughs> um, I'm the talkative one in our family. <laughs> but um, he grew up in a Mennonite church, and one of the things that the Mennonites have always done well is um, seeing the other. And um, he grew up watching his grandparents share food from their farm with other farmers in Kansas, and he grew up hosting people from all over the world in his home for long periods of time, sometimes up to a year. Um, and then I grew up um, just with really uh, hospitable women in my life. My grandmother would put a pot roast in the oven, or, or in the crock pot every morning before church would start, every Sunday morning, and then she would look for the new family in church and then she would look at what age do they, kids do they have, and she'd invite another family that she already knew with kids that age so that she would have families over for lunch every Sunday. And that's the house my mom grew up in. And then my mom and dad, um, we had a lot of missionaries we supported in our church, and every time a missionary would be on furlough, we'd host them in our house. So I, I kind of grew up feeling like maybe our house should have had a revolving door on it because there were always people coming in and out. Um, so we talked a lot about this in our marriage. What can we learn from the churches we grew up in and apply them to our own homes? Um, and we thought, you know, someday we're going to adopt a kid. And <laughs> I'm so sorry, I get emotional about this. Um, I thought I wouldn't cry. <laughs> but two years ago, got a cancer diagnosis and I was told that I couldn't have kids anymore sorry and then I thought about how hard would it be to then adopt a kid and have them lose another mother 
sorry, that's really emotional, but, um, but then we found safe families. And we found out it's not about being a mother for these children. It's actually trying to help their mothers. Um, this ministry is all about women, um, caring for women who have, in our society, who are very much the widows, um, who don't have a family or a husband to support them, and who have found themselves in crisis and just need somebody to take their kids. And um, we just knew this was the right thing for us to get involved in because when I was going through chemotherapy, our house was never empty. There were always people bringing food, caring for our children, um, and coming alongside us. And I thought, I never would have been able to make it through the, that year alone. I can't imagine. These women are so strong. They've done so much already. They've had, they've had these children. They are work, they've worked for a long time to try to support them. And, um, and now they're going through a crisis where they just can't do it on their own. And they need somebody to step alongside them and be their family. And we thought, we can do this because we know what that feels like. Um, and, and then we got to the training and we found out that there were all these people who maybe didn't know what that felt like, but they just were ready to love kids and bring them into their house and see that each of these child, each child that comes into their house is a little Jesus. It's somebody that we can love who we have to step kind of outside our comfort zone and enter into this new place, literally like going to Chicago to pick up kids or going to Palatine to pick up a kid or going to Schaumburg to pick up a kid, stepping outside our comfort zone, seeing the mother there and promising them that we're going to take care of their child that we're going to communicate with them every day, that we're going to um, bring them for visits, and then that we're going to help them become a family again. That we're not trying to take these kids away from them, but we're trying to help their family be more whole. Um, and really quickly, I just wanted to read um, the uh, mission statement for Safe Families, just so you could hear it. It says, Safe Families for Children is a movement fueled by compassion to keep children safe and families intact. Through host families, family friends, and family coaches, we temporarily host children and provide a network of support to families in crisis while they get back on their feet. We open our hearts, open our arms, and open our homes. And we thought at first it would be so easy to just throw another child into the mix. It's an extra plate on the dinner table. It's borrowing some clothes from some other people. It's driving on Saturdays for a visit with the moms. But we learned really quickly that it's a lot more than that. Um, about a month into hosting, her mother was in a terrible car accident. And for five days, she, um, her lungs kept collapsing and she was in a coma and we kept waiting for the call to bring the kids to the hospital to say goodbye to her. Um, and um, she actually made it. And our hosting went from one month to five months while her mother went through rehab and um, did physical therapy to be able to walk again. And we kept until her mother could lift her. And um, her mom was working so hard and her mom had grown up in a home that was very abusive. And we found that our care for, for um, their family became not just giving a warm bed to sleep in and a meal at the table and some extra cuddles every day, but also being a voice of encouragement for her mom to try to dispel all those negative voices that had been her whole, um, 
her whole script, her whole life of who she was, and to try to tell her that she was loved by Jesus and that she could make it through this and that all of her hard work was worth it so that she could hold her kids again. And on Mother, the, the three days before Mother's Day, she took her kids back and they are doing so well. Another safe family actually got their a whole apartment furnished for them. We were working with other families through this time, the, who had, the other family who had older brother and sister got the whole uh, apartment furnished just a couple blocks from their house so they could be an extra physical support for her. And, um, and then right before the kids went back, her mother went to a, a women's retreat and she met all these women who had been broken somehow by life and heard the message of, um, of grace and salvation there. Um, and she was ready to hear it too. She received it that, that weekend. Um, so you can continue praying for their family, but, um, but what I found out was that the, radical, the idea of radical hospitality, inviting these children into our house, was so much more than just the kids. It was their mothers, their whole family, their future, um, and just giving everybody in their families hope that there was a hope for them, but also that it was going to change us. Um, in so many ways, and I can tell you more about that <laughs> another time, but I think I'm way past my five minutes now. So, <laughs> um, so that's our story of um, and radical hospitality and what we've learned through Safe Families. So I'm going to take us on more of a global trip here. Um, just for as a synopsis, for those of you who might be new to All Souls, um, we've been involved with a school over in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. The slum of Dandora is one of the many, many slums surrounding Nairobi. And the people there face huge challenges, abject poverty, crime, high unemployment, um, gang influence, um, not to mention the fact that it's built on the city dump and it's deemed to be one of the most toxic places in the world. And in this dark place, there is a school, um, actually a series of three schools, a primary, secondary, and vocational school called Kenyago Dandora Schools. And it offers hope to over 700 children, a nursery school through um, even graduates of high school, um, who kids who would otherwise be out on the street picking through the dump or trying to earn money for their families. Um, I've been involved with this ministry for 20 years, um, actually a little bit over 20 years, and how I got involved was the most amazing story, a beautiful story in itself that I don't have time to tell you because I only have five minutes. Um, but all I have to say is it changed my life um, radically. And every church and school I go to, I try to tell them all about um, Kenyago Dandora School. And All Souls has come alongside this school as well for the last almost decade now and um, sponsored over 30 children in the last seven years and um, done a lot of beautiful things to help the school. The most recent of which was to earn money for new textbooks when they completely revised the educational system. And you all stepped up so beautifully and we had 
you know, benefit concerts and all kinds of things. Um, and in Lent, it, which is coming up, we'll be doing our fill, annual fill a bowl where we take, put a bowl on our tables and we put an extra change in and then bring it as an offering on Palm Sunday. And this goes to help feed the children during the month that they don't have school. Um, that's coming up. But they asked me to talk about slow and steady. And I have learned a lot about this in the last um, 20 years. Um, too much to talk about completely, but a few things. Uh, I was thinking, what does slow and steady mean? Uh, and it, it means, in some ways, a faithfulness. Um, times that are inconvenient, things that are inconvenient, or things that are convenient. Um, things that are glamorous or, or ways of helping that maybe are not so glamorous, that are just small things, but that make a huge difference in the life of these kids. Um, in their celebrations, and in their sadnesses. Um, faithfulness in helping them through the enormous challenges that they have to face. Um, and faithfulness in prayer. As you might have noticed, we have a prayer schedule with these kids. Um, we pray for them every Sunday, some of them, and they pray for us, and they tell us. Um, they take this very seriously. They pray for you when you're on that schedule. Um, slow and steady also to me means um, kind of a taste of heaven. In, in that just that long-term relationship with people, um, all these nations and tribes learning about God through them in ways that we as Westerners may not see, but that are so beautiful when you see it through the eyes of the kids in Africa. It invites us to slow down and get to know people, to see deeply, to listen carefully, and um, above all, to build relationships. The Africans are really big at building relationships, which is why we have our 10 sponsored kids, to get to know them, to let them know, as Britta said so beautifully, that they're seen, and, and, and Sarah too, that they're not forgotten, that somebody cares about them in the dust heaps. Um, one of the people that we sponsor right now is Anne. You can see Jennifer Merck with her arm around Anne. Um, Anne we started sponsoring in seventh grade. In eighth grade, she found herself in a very difficult situation, um, pregnant, and um, we don't know the circumstances or, and you know how how this happened, but it was a very difficult situation for her, for her. All souls came alongside her and helped her when the baby was born, provided her with supplies for the baby, um, encouraged her. Uh, gave her and her mom a gift that helped them, enable them to actually live in a home. Um, and then sadly, after four months, the baby died, and this eighth grader had to go through um, this trauma. Um, she was able to return to school after that, and this year she's a senior, and she's been working hard on her studies. And when we went there two years ago, our team got to meet her, and, and she expressed such deep gratitude um, without all souls, I don't know how, sh how they would have managed um, to, to get through this situation. Um, we are still in touch with a few of our original sponsored kids from, what, seven years ago. Um, one of them is, texts me re regularly. I'll get, pick up my phone, hello, mom. <laughs> and, and he'll be telling me about his day. We recently helped him purchase a computer for his studies, which he needed so desperately. And after waiting three years, he finally got it. And um, this is helping him complete his studies. And he's doing really well. Um, so it's um, these beautiful success stories where lives are saved. And I have so many. I could go on for an hour. But I think I'm past my five minutes to um, 
I just appreciate the community of all souls and the community of Dandora being one in prayer and one in Christ. And thank you for your love for them. If your heart is as full as mine, why don't we just clap applause for you. Thank you to, uh, for listening and thank you for the stories. Um, we probably have just a few moments before we need to wrap up. So I would point out one thing. Uh, at the, if, if you flip over to the budget side, at the very bottom, I've given you um, a, an important clue to how to contact people at All Souls. Our email syntax is first.last at allsouls.com. All the people that you heard from today, you have their names on the front of the agenda. You also can see on the budget the ministry contact for each of these areas. All of these people have All Souls email addresses. If you wanted to reach them, if you want to hear more stories from Kathy, you could email her. If you want to hear more how to get involved with Safe Families, you could email Britta. Um, examples are Rob and my addresses off to the bottom right there, um, just to give you a sense. So I, I want to encourage you to use your own spiritual imagination as you've heard these stories to say, is there a place where you would like to get involved? And I would also open up to any um, questions about the budget. Obviously, we don't have time for a long discussion, and we're glad to um, talk about this at other times as well. Um, actually, let me point out just a few details. Um, the total 2019 budget for Souls on Mission is that $30,950 that's at the top of that column, kind of one-third from the right. That is what the the vestry has assigned to Souls on Mission for the year. Um, last year's budget was 28141 And you'll notice at the bottom of the 2019 budget, 28450 um, That is what we've currently allocated. You can see that that's diff the 28450 is different than the 3950 which leaves a little wiggle room during the year for things that might come up that we hadn't anticipated in, um, in December when the budget was made, so it gives us a little um, opportunity for growth. Does anybody have any questions that we could answer? Thank you also to the kids that are here. The youth are here with us for catechesis, and I believe the fourth and fifth graders are here as well. Um, the teachers for those groups decided that this was a good place to be this Sunday morning. So we're glad you guys are here. I just want to take an opportunity also to thank Jennifer Merck, who, when Jennifer tells me to do something, I just do it. <laughs> um, I was on a Southwest flight, got a napkin, and said, uh, in a world full of no, we're a plane full of yes. <laughs> and I immediately put on the napkin, um, Leaning into the Lean into the yes, JKM. <laughs> Jennifer Coleman. Coleman Merck. I have it in my refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer is always on my mind. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer, for everything. Thank you.
that's all we have for today. Thank you very much.